UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, we're live now. I think I just gotta hit my intro, and I can edit this out. It's it takes it, this. Wow, that was fun. Hi. I have a real legend with me today. Um, I have with me Sean David Morton. Um, if you guys that don't know a little bit of the background, Sean's like a, he's been he's, he's an Art Bell alumni. He used to go on Art Bell all the time, make predictions. He's been a psychic for years, but he really knows about the insider of ufology, inside inside of what's going on in ufology, things with the real, things with the secret space program. He knows you know everything you want to ask. He's written books, so he's written a book, a series called The Sands of Time. And he's also um, written a new book about the real, which we're going to get into today. Um, just a little bit more about my guest, a little bit more detailed bio. Sean David Morton first came to national attention with his investigations in Area 51, his accurate predictions regarding the 89 San Francisco earthquake. He later went on to successfully predict the 92 Landers, the 94 Northridge, and the 94 Kobe Japan earthquakes. In order to get his amazingly accurate predictions out to the world, Sean formed the Prophecy Research Institute in 92. In the 1980s, Sean and Elizabeth Tart pioneered many of the current techniques used in remote viewing today. Sean is a skilled and experienced remote viewer and has taught remote viewing in seminars all over the world. He has been a freelance writer, producer, and investigative reporter on television programs such as Sighting, Strange Universe, and Hard Copy. Sean is an independent feature film writer, director, and author, and his website is www.strangeuniverseradio.com. And again, this guy founded Strange Universe Radio. That was a, a competitor of Art Bell back in the day. And I'm going to ask him about that. But with, the, with all else said, I want to give a big warm welcome to Sean David Morton. Sean, thank you for coming back on the show. How are you? You're welcome. Thank you. Good to, it's, it's good to be with you, handsome. It's great to, you know, you and your alien buddies. It's, all, it's always a joy. Yeah. Well, I also want to say that I'm not in any competition with uh, Journey to Truth. I love those guys. It's it's like just like, you know, authors come out with books and they have to go on different shows. If they go on different shows, then they sell books. So, like, it's not like, you know, people go on different shows is what I'm trying to say. So with that said. I expect you to be a competitor um, with anybody else. I expected you to be you. And do what you do. Well, I was telling my audience because you know, like, I didn't, I didn't want them to think that, like, because Journey to Truth just had you on. You know what I mean? People could think stuff, but like, but uh, you know, um, what I wanted to ask you was, you did this back in the day, though. Like, you were going on Art Bell, but then you had Strange uh, 
Universe Radio. Like, can you talk about how that and like you guys were almost in like competition for a little bit, but like you would still go on art and like you would slam predictions. You would really knock it out of the park. Well, it goes. It's it's a lot more complicated than that because uh, <laughs> he was uh, Bell was owned by Talk Radio Network, which was uh, owned by some really nasty people named Roy Masters and his son uh, Mark Masters. And uh, Art was just basically a local show that was only heard in uh, Las Vegas. And it wasn't until uh, I was going out to Area 51 and <clears throat> Art was the only person on the radio. So we'd call him from a payphone out in front of the little alien in Rachel, Nevada. And uh, I remember you know, telling Art, I said, look, I know you're on the other side of the base over in Pahrump. Go outside. Look up. There's a thing coming over you. And... Uh, you know, and there was this big craft that was coming right over his 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 his, his trailer, and uh, so I just got finished. We just got finished interviewing uh, Bob Lazar in 1990, and then I worked on a UFO documentary called UFO Contactees, where we put together uh, over 600 hours of footage with contactees, abductees, scientists, researchers, whatever, uh, as part of about a $350,000 documentary. Uh, it included investigations into the Dulce Mesa, which we ultrasounded and proved existed and was being run by a nuclear pile. And, you know, there were people claiming that Dulce was just made up and, you know, we proved them wrong. And uh, so I had a giant database of people. And Art had no experience in this whatsoever. He was just kind of a right of center, really boring political talk show host. And he said, Sean, I want to know everyone and everything you know. And I was like, okay and you know i kind of handed him my database and and so for the first three years or so um i was producing the program in the form of getting him in contact and getting him numbers of people to have on the show and we built that program from nothing from a local show to then you know being owned by by roy masters not his real name by the way his real name is like ruben obermeister or something and he's uh he's a german pretending to be english pretending to be american and uh but we built the show into uh, nearly 27 million people. It was it was number one in the late night ratings and number three overall. Number one was Dr. Laura Slushinger. Um, number two was Rush Limbaugh. And then number three was, I think, when Dr. Laura got bounced off the air, I think Art became number two. So it turned into a juggernaut. It was then, it was sold to, uh, um, sold for 10 million bucks to uh, uh, Premiere. And then Premiere got bought by Clear Channel. And Clear Channel's a huge global conspiracy because it's run by the Bushes and uh, was funded by a huge fund called the Trilateral Commission Trust out of the Cayman Islands, where their goal in the 90s was to buy up uh, all AM radio to be able to create the presidency of George Bush. And, uh, and I made predictions actually early on about Bush back in 97, saying he was going to be not only the next president of the United States, uh, but in writing, I put that he was not going to be, that he would be appointed president, that he'd win the electoral college and, and by some court decision, uh, not with the popular vote, which is exactly what happened. I also warned everybody that he was going to be drenched in blood, that he was going to kill millions of people, which they did. Uh, since 9-11, you're looking at over 27 million deaths and casualties from wars that the United States have started in the Middle East. And... Um, which was one of Trump's big bitches because he sat down with the Pentagon guys and said, you spent $8 trillion on Afghanistan. 27 million people are dead. Uh, 
what do we have to show for it? I can't get money to build a bridge or a road or a wall between here and Mexico. And uh, that's when the whole military-industrial complex really turned against him and the Five Eyes <laughs> intelligence agencies. And everything you're seeing happen to Trump now is so classic CIA. They've done it in Banana Republic countries all over the world because we used to have some kind of free press. They couldn't get away with it in the United States. Now they are. Um, I mean, you just saw the firing of Tucker Carlson, which is weird because you have, you have uh, companies like BlackRock, which is... Uh, run by Nathan Rothschild, and BlackRock is a, a massive stockholder in Fox, but they're also a massive stockholder in Dominion, so they just shuffled a bunch of money around, you know, like $800 million or whatever it is, as a payoff to themselves, and um, as uh, part of the treats they got from that payoff, they fired Tucker Carlson, who was probably one of the freest, uh, most open guys on radio. The messed up part about this is that I talked to Justin Wells, who was uh, the producer for Tucker, and Tucker had just gotten done doing a whole big series on the cattle mutilations. Well, right dead center of where the cattle mutilations had taken place in northern New Mexico is the Dulce Archuleta Mesa. And there's whole reasons why they were sucking blood out of those cattle and why they were cutting off their tongues and, and uh, you know, their guts and their sex organs and whatever else, coring off the anuses. And, uh, and I still have footage of, I think I'm the only person on earth that still has footage from inside the Mesa and the footage of the ultrasound that we did on the Mesa proving it exists. And Justin said, uh, we're going to have you on. And he says, I'm going to slate you up and I'm going to have you on like next week or maybe next two weeks. And that Monday, Tucker walked in and, you know, uh, they said, everybody works at Fox, raise your hand. And they said, oh, Tucker, not so fast. So it'll be interesting to see where, uh, where Tucker Carlson ends up. And uh, he's from San Diego. So maybe I'll go down and work for him or produce a show or, you know, do something uh, uh, when he comes down here to San Diego. Yeah, I don't get too political, like, you know, because I, I feel like we're being run by, like, this elite cabal that's, like, that doesn't have our best interests. I realize the right's way better than the left. But what I wanted to ask, I, I, but like, I, I, know, I know where you're coming from. Like, Trump, I think, was trying to do good. But, like, besides all that, there's so much I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about Area 51, Bob Lazar, what you think's really going on with UFOs. I'd love to hear what you think about those cattle mutilations. I mean, there's so much I can pick your brain about. So maybe out of any of those, if you want to, because, okay, here's what I was going with Bob Lazar. I know Bob Lazar is an old topic, but just hear me out. There's a real skeptical guy that comes on now and I like his show, but he's saying stuff that Bob Lazar was a pimp and that he's all fake. And I just want to get your input on what you think the real deal is on Bob Lazar. And then I'll, I guess I'll answer well, the pimp thing probably comes from, uh, you know, Bob was hired to put security cameras in the parking lot of a legal brothel in Nyack County. And uh, that was it. But what happened was then the government came after him and he was the, he's the first person in, in 60 years in Nevada. So this is in defense of Bob Lazar. Uh, to put to to be prosecuted for pandering, for having some stake in and you know putting security cameras up in a parking lot, uh, you know so girls would get mugged or raped or something on the way to their cars, and uh, uh, so his punishment is he had to do 60 hours of community service, which he did I think teaching high school science or you know working at a science fair or something, so that's the pimp thing which is stupid. Um, Lazar, hold on one second. Lazar only worked at, uh, at, at 5-1. Stop it. 
Let me turn this off, sorry. Uh, Lazar only worked at 5-1 for a grand total of 16 days, I think, in uh, late December uh, through January, you know, through about May or so uh, at 5-1. He, he, he was drawing paychecks from the Navy. So, um, you know, so he has proof that he, that he worked there. Uh, you had people try to debunk him like Stanton Friedman, which, you know, which really sucked. Uh, but, um, you know, that he never worked at Los Alamos. Well, George Knapp was the one that went out there and found him in the phone book in Los Alamos and, and found him in the, uh, uh, in the directory of people that worked at Los Alamos, which he was. So, um, and again, my only beef with, with Bob Lazar was that when he finally came out and spoke to uh, uh, George Knapp at the at the behest of uh, Bill Cooper and, and John Lear, because he was sitting in his car out in front of I think uh, John Lear's house, um, his story changed. We interviewed him in 1990, in January of 1990, and uh, uh, his story changed substantially from that from then. So, and that's the only thing that kind of pisses me off. Then I read his book. And I was like, what's this? I mean, I was looking at his book going, man, this would make a great movie. And I was all excited about it. And then I read his book. And again, he's just like, he's eviscerated. He's completely castrated his story, I think. Because he claims that he didn't, uh, uh, that he was that he was fired from his gig at 51. Because they did a background check on him. And his wife was, was cheating on him with his, with a flight instructor or something. Uh, which was not the story we heard at all. We, we heard that he got beaten up by uh, Dennis Mariana, uh, you know, the red-headed captain at the base. And, you know, the guy stuck a gun in his mouth and took him out in the desert to make him a target of opportunity and, you know, shot at him and all kinds of stuff, which is what uh, uh, he was all pissed off. And that's why he, uh, he did the George Knapp interview and, you know, and then quit the base in more of a rage. Uh, he also had some interactions with, uh, with alien beings where he was on one end of the hangar and he saw one of these in the far wall with Dennis Mariana and two guards actually walking across the, uh, uh, the far end of the hangar at, uh, at the S4 facility. And uh, that people just vapor locked when they saw this creature. He was saying that every hair on his body stood up and that you, know, you just have no place in your head to put seeing one of these things. And he said it, it was kind of spindly and had on a black jumpsuit and you know, moved like it was underwater. And the guy next to him just vapor locked, just was like, and Mariana came and, and you know, boot stomped the guy, punched him in the stomach, and, you know, they never heard from that guy again. So, um, so for me, I mean, it, 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 he then did a science lecture, uh, which is the videotape he put out, I think, in 92. And everything he said, everything he said, scientifically and otherwise, in that, in that science lecture uh, has turned out to be true. All of it. All of it. And, uh, Even element one fifteen, right? Yeah, it's it's and again, we were only at element when he made that little science lecture. We were at element. Uh, God, we weren't there. It was like one oh five, I think one oh eight. I think was the biggest element that we'd come to. But guess what? We we the more research we started doing into uh, into these crazy elements, we found the elements went completely crazy and were completely unstable. Uh, up through 112, uh, 113, uh, 114, and then suddenly, mysteriously, as exactly as he said, they stabilized at one at 114, 115, and so the the ships that they had, uh, 
had a, a, a conical drive engine in them with a, uh, uh, and, and it would plug an extra proton into the 115 and turn it into element 116, which was antimatter. And then that would be uh, propelled at a target gas inside the, the conical, and it would it would achieve about a 96% annihilation rate. To give you an idea, an atomic bomb achieves, or a hydrogen bomb achieves, maybe 6% annihilation to get that kind of explosion. And um, uh, the bottom of the ships had these three gravity amplifiers, and the amplifiers, when it was in Omicron mode, it would just float. And you can see it. This reason why they were all kind of jerky, because they would float on this magnetic field that was just, you know, like water, and then all three of them, they'd turn it on, it would create kind of an interdimensional hole, it would reach through the hole, grab where it wanted to be, wrap that around the ship, and then turn off the gravity amplifiers, and then boom, it would it would be where it wanted to be, and we had film and video of this, because, you know, I was out there, uh, where you would see these things dancing around, and they just disappear in one part of the sky, and in a 20th of a second, they would reappear uh, somewhere else, so... But in 91, I went out with a friend of mine, Shannon Sands, who was the uh, reporter for the L.A. Times, and another buddy of mine, Jeff Slack, and uh, we got swooped by a saucer. I mean, this thing came down in the road on its edge, flattened out, was about 60 feet across, I mean, right in front of us. And then it went zip, and then zipped out in the desert. My friend and I, Jeff, jumped out of the car and started chasing after this thing. Then it started chasing after us, and you know, we fell down, and we were both there just kind of clutching each other, peeing our pants, just in complete terror. And it made this sound like a Tibetan bell, and the 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 aura around it just went. And we got bathed in this. We got sick as dogs too, because we had uh, doctor said we had radiation poisoning from it. And then it just went, and then and then shot off into the desert, uh, which created another mystery as to why is it that you have a military installation that's three times the size of Switzerland uh, testing all of its most top secret stuff right over the heads of civilians off Highway 375. And uh, the story to that was because Area 51 is the dark side of the moon. It's not connected to the regular military. It's a whole different thing. So there's a whole uh, um, evolutionary, there's a bifurcation, if you will, of technology that is rockets, ramjets, scramjets, uh, plutonium drives, uh, you know, all the junk science, basically, that's <laughs> happening at Area 51. And then you go down the road to S4 and S2 and, you know, different areas about 30 miles down the road down by Papoose Lake. And that's where they're... And, and 5-1 was only interesting because it was 87 uh, that they moved the nine saucers in and then they built this facility into the side of the mountain and moved the nine saucers in and created the five levels underneath that were for security, for scientists, for whatever else. And then level five was a ambassadorial suite where they kept a few captured aliens. That's fascinating. I was going to say, do you do you think? That, I mean, like this is going to sound like a really simple question, but I think it's an important one because it's. I think it's something that we all know that we don't acknowledge. Like if what Greer says is real, and what you say is real, and what other ufologists say is real, wait, 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 and that this phenomenon exists. Well, it, it, just let me finish. I was going to say, like, the people say that if people found out about UFOs, the truth about it, that there would be free energy and there would be anti-gravity. Yes. If that's real, it really would change the world, right? I mean, it might even change our politics and the way people – if people found out there were really aliens, then they might think twice about their reality and what is this world that we live in. You know what I mean? I don't know. What, what do you think about what I just said? You're exactly right. 
I mean, I said on TV over and over again, I don't care if they've got aliens there. For all I know, that's a cover. Uh, the fact is they have, uh, they have field technology and anti-gravity. If you have that, you change everything. But that's the problem because now you have free energy. Uh, you don't need oil. Um, you, don't, you, you can float whole cities into space if you want. I mean, it's, it opens up everything. As a matter of fact, uh, in my Sands of Time books, and I'm sorry, this background just completely is failing me. I, it's, it looks, uh, what am I doing here? It's, it's wrong. But um, uh, I published the Unified Field Theory. I have a patent on it. I, I copyrighted it. And um, it's the last thing that Albert Einstein supposedly wrote on a notepad and then looked at it, fell over dead in his office at Princeton in New Jersey, and that they took it out from underneath his head. And I published it in my books. And I've challenged physicists to look at this because it's, it's where we get all this technology from. Uh, the biggest thing they've developed from it is what they call gravity phones or G phones. They're, they're like um, Apple iWatches. But you can communicate. It's subspace radio. You can communicate with anybody, anywhere, instantaneously, anywhere in the universe. Not just the galaxy, but the universe. So, um, so they use these, these, these gravity phones. And then we developed something called time runner technology and time runner technology is the ability to instantaneously uh, teleport uh, people and equipment once again to anywhere in the universe well that is the most powerful weapon in the universe if I can teleport um, an atomic bomb onto Vladimir Putin's desk or go after the Sumerians or go after the, you know, the, what are called the Illigen or go after the, you know, our enemies in the universe like the, like the Alf Draconians. Um, uh, that makes us dangerous. And that, uh, it, it's it, it, in my books I show where uh, we've upset the entire balance of power uh, in the galaxy and collapsed a number of the great houses that, that sort of kept order but kept big chunks of the galaxy under totalitarian regimes and what have you. And the, uh, the Illigen... Uh, first set up Babylon, and that lasted for a while. Then they set up the Roman Empire, and they were trying, and this is what the Vrildom and Diary books talk about, they were trying to set up a Third Reich with the Germans. And the Vrildom books um, answer the biggest question of the 20th century that no one is asking, that how the hell do the Germans go from biplanes made out of you know dope and canvas and wire to within 20 years having space travel? And, and implosion drives and, and you know all of a sudden now there's a bunch of geniuses in, in, in Germany and after the end of the war we didn't say what Hitler did was terrible we said oh wow that's neat show us how to do that here and they transported the entire military industrial entertainment pharmaceutical complex of Nazi Germany including IG Farben and including all the horrible experiments at Dachau and Auschwitz etc cetera, et cetera. they transported that lock stock and barrel under Project Paperclip here, which you know of, under the Odessa file, uh, whereas the Vatican was acting as a rat line for the really bad Nazis, and they transported that all to the United States and turned the United States into the into the wonderful fascist utopia that you see today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you, I've had Dan Willis on my show many times, and he feels like that they brought in the Nazis, and not only did they take control of our science and pharmaceutical, but they took control of our media. He thinks, I mean, he says that they wanted, they had a plan called Volkenschwerenstein. I don't, I, I butchered that word, but he says it perfectly. But in German, that meant worldview warfare. And what their plan was to do was like take over America and kind of uh, 
I guess, kill us from the inside out, and maybe they're doing a good job. Being done. Being done. And you're, you're about ready to see it again. Watch what happens in 2024. We haven't fixed anything. And um, Biden can still hide in his basement, come out and laugh at you, go back in. Uh, Soros is already behind the scenes trying to split the vote by, uh, by funding uh, Ron DeSantos. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you who, the, who I think the Democratic nominee is going to be, and I've been right every time. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll save that for the end of the show. I know who you think it's going to be, all right? You think it's going to be Michelle Obama, right? Uh-uh, yeah, and, you know, it's funny because I talked about that like two years ago, and now I'm hearing it echoed back to me. I mean, I'm here, I'm watching people like, you know, Roger Stone get up on shows. Like, that's his big revelation, and I've been saying that forever. I, th- I said, uh, matter of fact, two years ago, I put out a funny meme uh, that I thought it was going to be uh, Michelle Obama and uh, and Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, and so I put I did this funny. I sent it to you, but it's you know the, the Rock and the Sock for president and vice president in you know in 2024, and I don't know why it's lost on people that not only does she have a book, not only is she actively campaigning, not only is Obama still pulling the strings, not only is Obama actively backed with millions of dollars by by George Soros, but do you know where the Democratic convention is going to be in 2024? Anybody? I have no clue where it's going to be. It's going to be in Chicago. It's going to be in Chicago. So, and, wow. and what is the what is the what is the backbone of the Democratic Party now? What is their voting block that they are counting on to win this election? And that is radicalized, lesbian, feminist, baby-killing women, women. And that's what you know. And, and and that's why they claim you didn't have the red wave with the Republicans, which is also not true. Because again, nobody's fixed the election system; it's all still rigged. The Dominion voting machines are rigged. Um, they're winning all these lawsuits for sort sort of libel and slander, which is disgusting, because because Trump. It's not so much Trump is stupid, but he surrounded himself with a kind of a Roman Senate. That's being led by by Brutus himself, which is you know Mitch McConnell, who's the uh, uh, who's the Trojan horse inside all of this, and um, uh, he filed sixty lawsuits. I don't know why nobody's not talking about this, but he filed sixty lawsuits to try to overturn the election and try to question the election result. In not one of those lawsuits, not one, and I read a bunch of them. Um, do you actually have a demand or request from any court for discovery? So that's like me suing you and not wanting to and, – and walking into court saying, well, you did this to me, but I'm not going to provide you with any proof whatsoever, nor am I going to make you provide any proof of what you did. I'm going to be laughed out of every court there is. And then you have all these idiots who are talking about the Brunson case with the Supreme Court. And the Brunson case also has no standing in it, and it's and it's just it's a they're all just paper tigers. Matter of fact, in, in the uh, in the Gore v. Bush case in Florida, uh, which once again was ruled on by the Supreme Court, Supreme Court said you can't use this ruling again for anything. Uh, this ruling does not carry any precedent whatsoever. And they had one guy that had standing, some hobo they literally found in a bush, that said oh, I was harmed by this, and they used the excuse of this one guy claiming he was harmed by the election results in Florida uh, for them to actually bring Gore v. Bush and actually have it heard by the Supreme Court. There's no standing in the Brunson case. There's no standing in any of the 60 lawsuits that uh, that Trump filed. 
uh, nor is there any single demand for discovery. And here you have the Dominion uh, Systems, uh, which are owned almost lock, stock, and barrel by BlackRock and, and Nathaniel Rock, uh, Rothschild. Uh, the guy who was head of Dominion at the time said Donald Trump will not win the election because I run the vote at uh, the Dominion voting machine. And, uh, you know, and there you go. And by the way, you had Sidney Powell and Elwin Wood, these super attorneys, were showing up every day with truck after truck after truck of proof to show the election fraud. And they were getting told to kick rocks and go take a long walk off a short pier by none other than Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, who was stabbing Trump in the back the entire time. The entire staff was like, Trump, just give up so we can go out and get our get our jobs in the deep state. And, uh, you know, screw you. It's just, it's all bad. Yeah. I, I wanted to get back on the ufology stuff. Like, you, you wrote this book, the, the real book. Like, um, tell us more about that. Like, who, I, okay, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who the Elohim are. Are they like the Elohim or the Anunnaki? Would that be like the equivalent? And the, are they like a separate race? Or like, what's up with them? They're the Sumerians. They're the ones that started the Sumerian Empire. They've been here. They've been coming and going from Earth for something like 500 million years. Um, they've, uh, uh, they come every 23,000 years. They've genetically engineered mankind, the, the beings on the surface anyway. And uh, uh, they grabbed a bunch of monkeys, probably about 20,000 of them, <coughs> went away for a while. Uh, genetically engineered the monkeys, uh, shortened our, our DNA strand because apes and higher gorillas have uh, 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 48 base pairs. We have, we have 23 base pairs of DNA. And uh, higher apes and chimpanzees have 24. They actually have more DNA than we do. And it was clamped at the top. Uh, an aging virus was released into our DNA as well, because there's no reason that humans should not live uh, between 600 and 1,000 years, and we don't because of this aging virus. But it, it, and the aging virus you can track down to Genesis 6. It says, uh, and, and Yahweh or God, at the request of the fallen sons of God, I might add, shall set the age of man at uh, four score and twenty, or uh, at 120 years, which is why nobody lives beyond 120 years so um, they set up Babylonian civilization and um, uh, there was a big war 65 million years ago and the war was between the Elegem or you could call them the Sumerians and an interdimensional race of beings called the uh, Andorra uh, uh, Banthians and uh, and the Saurians and the reptilians that were here now that now the reptilians went underground and evolved with the help of the Altraconians and we, the mammals, were on the surface and evolved with the help of the uh, uh, of the Sumerians or the Elegem or what have you. And they, I think, what they were on the seventh, uh, the seventh incarnation of our evolution. And uh, they were on. And my my book, The Sumerian War, is about how they were coming back, and they had every intention of wiping the surface of the earth clean, and uh, starting over again. And we used our technology to stop them. And the, the Draconians, and actually, let me point this out to you because you're a UFO skeptic guy. You've seen the uh, you've seen the symbols for NASA, right? Yeah. You've seen this. Have you seen the symbol for the Space Force? Yeah. Okay. Have you noticed the stars on either of those symbols? So for I example, thought it was like someone told me that was like a Pleiadian, or it has something to do with ETs, right? Like it has yes. it's definitely. Look at NASA. I mean, pull it up. You can actually see on the NASA logo at the top is Orion, which is, by the way, under the control of the Draconian Empire. On the lower right-hand corner, 
of the NASA logo is a constellation of the Pleiades. And in the lower left-hand corner is the constellation of the Great Red Dragon of Alpha Draconis. Now, it's weird because I'm not making this up. Look in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, you'll see the last battle comes down to Michael, the archangel, and the hosts of heaven that are talked about over and over and over again in the Old Testament, uh, the hosts of heaven, and how our children will live you know, off-planet in the constellations of Cancer and Aquarius and whatever else says it in there. And then uh, uh, and you'll look and see that Michael and his hosts fight the last battle with the great red dragon. It's all through the book of Revelation. So um, if you look in the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Great Pyramid is a prophecy in stone. It is a 7,000-year prophecy that starts about 2600 B.C. Uh, that doesn't really end until, my goodness, it goes all the way through, you know, well through to the year uh, 3000 or so. But the descending path of man is set by the alignment to Thuban, which is also known as the Dragon Star, which was the North Star at that time in the constellation of Alphaconis. And, uh, and we know the pyramid was completed approximately 9600 uh, B.C. And uh, uh, Every time there's an upward path to man, the the path the downward path is directly affected by a conjunction with the Pleiades, which then triggers the upward path, and you know the, the leading of uh, of the uh, the Hyksos or the Hebrews out of Egypt, and uh, and then the coming of a Messiah. It, it very specifically predicts Christ from 2 B.C. to 33 A.D., and uh, which then breaks the chains, if you will. And it is predicting that uh, there will be a great sign in the sky. There will be great tribulation and trouble and a sign in the sky on uh, September 27th of 2034. And, then, uh, and that the next Messiah either returns from the sky or just incarnates like Christ did. Uh, but the return of the Messiah is, uh, is marked for uh, October 31st of 2039. And the reason it's Halloween is because the symbolism of Halloween is that the souls of the dead return. And so when the Messiah returns, it means that everybody who has died in this last cycle uh, will now be allied, allowed to, uh, to reincarnate on, on Earth at that time. And by 2055, everything's rebuilt. The Earth will be uh, a paradise by then. Technology will be released and you know, all that stuff. But for now, that's amazing. Do you, do, let me ask you a question. You've been a, everything's going to fall apart, and you're going to see the United States break up and become probably a 13 nation state confederation, including Mexico and Canada. Wow. It's just like, uh, let me ask you this because you've been a psychic for a while and you've made predictions and you've nailed them. Like, how does this come to you? Is it like visions that you're seeing? Or like, and is it like really clear to where like you're like, yeah, this resonates with me. I'm going to go with this. Um, well, you know, it's a lot of work. It, it's uh, uh, when I was doing coast to coast, uh, Art would uh, I would do a meditation. I'd you know light the candles. I'd do all my meditations. I'd get some maps out. Uh, I mean, one of the things I became famous for was California was being directly threatened by a, a whole lot of earthquakes at that time. And uh, you had people like uh, Gordon Michael Scallion, who at that time was like the Mac Daddy of UFO predictors, and he was like ten. I remember him. Really good at it. And after the Landers earthquake in 1992, uh, there was a massive shift in the timeline. And the shift in the timeline was a direct 
extraterrestrial intervention that I watched with my neighbors in Hermosa Beach where we saw during that earthquake there were um, a fleet of these greenish avocado kind of gourd-shaped ships that dropped down from the clouds and you had these uh, these bluish-white beams of energy, uh, you know, blasting everything. It was all over the news where they were trying to tell you it was Transformers exploding and it was... Uh, uh, one explanation was, oh no, it's parachutists with flares tied to their ankle. I mean, ridiculous explanations for this. But it's that is right out of the book of, of, uh, of Jonah. And Jonah talks about waiting for the city of Nineveh to be destroyed. And he's up on a hill and he has to build a special lean-to to protect himself from radiation or something. And uh, he said that these living gourds, these greenish living gourds, actually were assembling over the city to destroy it. And at the last minute, they didn't because the people of Nineveh had managed to repent, which did not make Jonah happy at all because he hated him and he wanted to see him all destroyed. And they ran up the hill and they made him the king of Nineveh, which is really, it's a really funny story, actually. And, um, and he, by the way, he was not swallowed by a whale. He was actually picked up uh by something called the uh, the Great Fish was actually the name of the ship that he was in, and he was thrown into the the hold of the ship, and they were going to toss him overboard again. Um, and he said, "No, point the boat that way, and if you do that, everything will be fine." And they did, and he walked down the pier. He's not swallowed by whale for three days. So, um, um, that answer your question. I, so, so it was. I mean, I was all over the news at the time. I mean, I was—I I told Channel 9 News that there was going to be this big earthquake that was going to happen on the following Tuesday, and uh, which was kind of an act of hubris on my part, but the girl that ran Channel 9 News was a friend of mine, and uh, Artemis Shemamian, and she sent a news crew to my house on Tuesday to say, oh, look, we're in, the, we're in the, the house of the fake psychic that predicted a big earthquake for today. And as the crew was standing in my hallway, you know, I had a, a walk-up where they had to walk up the stairs. They're standing in the hallway, and I open the door. And as I open the door, like Doctor Strange, the, the quake hits, and the whole building starts shaking back and forth. And it became the story of, we're in the house of the psychic that predicted the earthquake today, and how did you do it? And I said, well, I just, you know, I meditate on it, and I, I, I spent a lot of time in a monastery in Nepal. I became an, an initiate monk of... Uh, of the uh, Tanguache Monastery, uh, Karma Kegu Black Hats. And I, the only way I can say it is that there's a form of when you integrate yourself and you're, you understand the whole universe lives within you, uh, you achieve a form of cosmic consciousness. That's the only way that I can describe it. So when I would get a feeling about something and I would think something weird was going to happen, uh, I would meditate on that, and uh, uh, you know, I've been at this my entire life. I mean, when I was, when I, I lived in Egypt when I was a kid. Uh, I got to spend the night in the pyramids when I was like 16. Um, I was part of the rescue effort. This is this is weird. I just found this out. I was part of the rescue effort uh, during the Civil War in uh, in Lebanon, and apparently one of the kids that that we rescued to actually put on a ship to actually take him over to Cairo. Uh, was Keanu Reeves, <laughs> I, I discovered, and uh, which is kind of funky. So, uh, but then I, at 19, I, I lived with a with a, a very powerful Hindu Swami named Swami Sri Jaya, and then in '86 I went and I, I lived with the uh, at the Dalai Lama's compound or whatever in Darsala, northern India, and then on orders from him I went to Tangbache, which is at the foot of Nepal, and I lived there for about a year.
and, uh, you know, learned what I needed to know and then went home and was told to help people and work uh, work for the enlightenment of all sentient beings, which is the oath you take, which is I try to do all the time. No, that's cool. Uh, what I was going to say was, um, what, what do you think is going on? You got into UFOs, and we've kind of gotten into that a while. You talked about Bob Lazar, Area 51. You've seen craft. We know they have craft. Like, how extensive do you think it gets? And does this tie into your Sands of Time book? You touch on the secret space program. The Sands of Time book is all about the secret space program. As a matter of fact, in 2009, I got called by some very scary lawyers in Century City. And this very scary woman made me sign a bunch of very scary documents that said, which were non disclosures, which are pretty common in, in Los Angeles. But these came with prison time. I mean, these came with, we will kill you. We will put a bullet in your head if you break this. And I was then handed stacks and stacks and stacks of these leather-bound journals. And they were all written by a guy who was head of the secret space program. I mean, the boss. He was the guy that ran everything from Montauk to Area 51 to uh, the Dulce War to, you know, everything that's happened. So if you're readers, if you're a skeptic, for example, and you're just starting out, and you're overwhelmed by the amount of information that you're having to kind of download in your brain. Uh, by reading Sands of Time 1 and 2, it's all there, and it's from a perspective of a man who's a man in black, who's, who's working from the other side of the mirror. So imagine if they did the X-Files uh, about the smoking man, as an example of uh, William B. Davis, I think is his name, uh, the actor. Uh, so imagine the X-Files, but being told from the side of the guy that was, you know, making all this happen. And it starts out with, uh, uh, Ted Humphrey, uh, not his real name, but growing up in, uh, Barstow, California, uh, his father then mysteriously disappearing. And, uh, he went to USC and then he went to Caltech and he, uh, uh, then, um, he gets into these secret programs because he wants to find out what happened to his father. And so that's pretty much the arc of the first two books. And then uh, the third book, which is the Isomer Protocol. Uh, Isomer Protocol was a shorthand for the Isolation Memorandum or the Isolation Protocol, which basically trapped human beings on this planet. And because uh, uh, aliens think we're a disease and uh, even our language is a virus, and uh, they put a fence up around Earth to not allow us to uh, get anywhere outside of, of uh, Earth or the moon. And uh, we kicked him in the teeth and uh, won our independence, if you will. So now we're, we're kind of all over the place. And, uh, and eventually it goes into the Time Runner series of, of what we did with the Time Runner devices, which is a teleportation device which can take you anywhere in the universe. And, uh, uh, and how we then uh, disrupted the great houses, if you will. And in the Sumerian War, which I just completed, and then the very last book, which is, which is the Draconian War or the Draco War, which is really scary because it's got a huge download. Uh, we have ambassadorial relations, by the way, with the reptilians underground. I mean, it's, it's in a big complex directly underneath the Pentagon. And uh, so I have a download of information from uh, ambassador, Ambassatrix Lacantha, who tells us not only about the, about the reptilians and about their relationship with the Alphaconians, but also what she calls the, uh, uh, the dark, she calls them the dark vril. And that these are the uh, the reptilians that work with the Illuminati that uh, that actively uh, still eat human flesh uh, that can actually like spit a, a, a toxic chemical in your face and take control of your body, basically hollow out your brain, 
so they can kind of walk around and, you know, and, and use their natural camouflage and their ability to control other beings. Because remember, they have brains that are just as big as ours, but they've been using them for about 65 million years longer than we have. So, um, you know, and even those chapters, writing those chapters just creep me out. I mean, I had reptiles crawling around in my brain, and I'm starting to think to myself that everything that David Icke has been saying all these years has been right. So, um, anyway, there you go. So, and it's a, it's a, it's an expanse of books. It's a, it's, it's seven books right now. It's going to be eight. It could be nine, because the Draco War is turning out to be so big, and so convoluted and complex. Uh, that, I, that there may be a ninth book in the series. So, but there you go. Still looking. And by the way, I'm a question from the chat. I'm still looking. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm still looking for a, a major publisher that won't screw me over. So it's uh, anyway. Are the great houses? Did you try um? Okay. Uh, yeah, this is. Uh, I was going to say, did you try Schiffer or um? Um, trying to think the co the company that always sends me interviews. They're uh, they're associated with Schiffer though. They're um. They're, they're great. I'll, I'll send you an email. I, I, I have the lady's email. I could probably try to. I don't. I don't have a big connection, but I'm. I know. If that's a publicist, then then you know, turn me on. Inner traditions. Inner traditions is who it is. They they make they make really good stuff. You know, like um, but um, Zaza Demon says, are the great house of the star seeds? Well, they're, yeah, they're they're. I mean, they're they're the, the they're the Pleiadians and the Orions and the Afterconians and the and the uh, <coughs> the uh, <coughs> the guys in charge now of Earth. <coughs> Not like they're doing a good job of it, but um, uh, it used to be the Pleiadians, and the Pleiadians just kind of threw up their hands and said, "We're not interested anymore. Nothing we do works. Every time they try to help us, it backfires." Uh, I've had serious relationships with uh, uh, with Pleiadian contactees. I mean, people are riding on the ships, taking photos of the ships, uh, photos inside the ships. And all I can tell you is that the Pleiadians have rotten taste in people because every single time I've dealt with them, they're just, they just turn into jerks. And uh, we had one guy uh, uh, who called himself Adrienne, who had the best photos, the best video, the best stuff, and he would never, he would never sign a contract with us to give us rights to his case. So... I mean, this guy would literally like crawl over his mother to screw his sister, and we had to take business cards out of his hands because you know we could have done <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. And it's just every single time he just was looking for ways to screw us. And uh, so yeah. we we're like, fine, here we, we set him up with some girl. He moved to Germany, so he's off in Germany doing something. But it's uh, uh, but this is a guy who could call in the ships, and he and his girlfriend rode on him, and and. Uh, so I was told that he went to a council in Andromeda, not the, not the galaxy, but the constellation. And at that council, the Pleiadians were like, we give up. There's nothing we can do with Earth. They're just, they're monkeys. Uh, every time we try to help them, it, it backfires. And uh, the beings that stepped up were the Arcturians. And uh, the Arcturians said, uh, Earth and its people are like a candle in the wind, and we cannot let that candle be extinguished. Now, I know that makes a, a nice Elton John song, but uh, uh, the idea here is is that then they they are the ones, the Arcturians are the ones who are behind the crop circles. And their ships, I, I've seen them, actually. They're, they're only about that big. They look like big footballs. And they're yellowish-orange. They call them amber gamblers. And they fly in pairs, and they'll, they'll swoop over a field, and 
and, and one imprint comes over the field this way, then they'll turn around and they'll, they'll swoop this way, and it comes over the other way. And uh, I was in the fields working on this, this UFO contactees documentary in uh, May of 1990. And uh, that's when they were just big circles. And this Audrain contactee guy said they're going to change. They're going to turn into sigils and uh, uh, designs that are going to give you prophecy and information. And lo and behold, they did. Matter of fact, the first big one uh, is famous. Uh, it was called the Cosmic Key. And, and thanks to Jimmy Page and his interest in the occult and his following of Aleister Crowley, uh, they put it on the, uh, on the front cover of the, was it Led Zeppelin's Greatest Hits? Is one of their albums. We actually see yeah. the Zeppelin, the shadow of the Zeppelin, and you just have the big key. But uh, those crop circles predicted all kinds of things. It predicted an exploding comet. Uh, I mean, I, I can show you a whole series of articles that I wrote making predictions based off the uh, based off the crop circles. And these are being done by the Arcturians. Now, it is interesting because the Arcturians are 10th uh, dimensional energy beings or corporate energy beings. So... Um, the only way to describe them is there was an old Star Trek episode where uh, uh, Diana Muldar starred as an ambassadrix, and uh, she was the ambassadrix for Emperor, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ambassador Kodos, and he was in a box. I'm not sure if you remember that episode. And if the box oh. opened and you didn't have special glasses on or something, it, it drove you insane to see the, the Medusans is what they're called. You remember this episode at all? Were you a Star Trek fan? Here. I, I don't remember it. I was a Star Trek person, but I don't remember it. Okay, and this is kind of funny because let me show you what they look like. I'm not kidding. This is this is what they look like. This is what the Andromedans look like. They look like Gort from uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still, and they have these like silver robotic bodies of which these these thousands of of uh, of entities actually live inside these these bodies. And uh, so I have this around to remind me the, that the Arcturians supposedly care, but. Uh, um. So I can't. I don't know if I can answer Miss Miss Demon's uh, question about the great houses being star seeds because the star seeds would be okay. They uh, look. I'm not of, of the idea that the that the extraterrestrials or the ETs whatever mean us any good. Um, even the good ones that we think you know would probably just take uh, would take people they like off the planet and use them for whatever and then you know just tip over the world uh you know as far as they're concerned uh the planet's overpopulated uh from the billy meyer case actually in his contact notes the palladians are saying that the ideal population of earth should only be 500 million and then you hear this coming from klaus schwab and the and the wae that the, that the population of earth should be pruned down to only 500 million uh, you know, for the good of Earth, which I think is complete crap. And, uh, uh, you know, now they're using their whole climate change unit. Now, it's interesting what they're doing and the timeline they're doing it on. Now, the Great Pyramid predicts that you're going to have millions, possibly billions of people on this planet between now and 2034 die or transcend or be taken off Earth. And, uh, and that then Earth is going to be cleaned like a sanctuary or a tabernacle. And then it's like a gate is going to be set up so that the only people allowed to incarnate on Earth after 2039 uh, are going to be people that are on a spiritual path. Now, it's still a public school. And so people that want to chase girls or guys and, you know, raid underpants and drink beer and whatever else are still going to be allowed to incarnate. 
But when the next Messiah comes along, and that's going to be about 2250 or so, uh, the doors are dropped and Earth becomes a secret world. And only those who are on a path of ascension are going to be allowed to incarnate on Earth. All the rest of the stupid kids are going to be shoved aside. They're going to spend a thousand years in the pit. And then in a thousand years, Lucifer is released again. And then the stupid kids get to uh, uh, get to incarnate and spend some time on the planet seeing if they could get it right this time. So it's like a circle of life. It all It's like it all, everything goes in circles kind of, right? And, like it, it, And the Great Pyramid, it's interesting that we've divided the Earth up into the first, second, third world. The pyramid is divided up into three paths. That the first path, influenced by the serpents, the Alpha Draconians, goes down to the bottom, to the pit, to pain and destruction and, and eventual personality annihilation. The second path starts upwards and um, takes a hard left turn. Actually, you see the you, you see the angle of Jesus, which is again September twenty uh, seventh of two B.C. to April first of thirty three A.D., which is when Maundy Thursday happened. I mean, the, the the Last Supper and the crucifixion actually did happen, and we have all kinds of proof of this that it happened on April first of thirty three A.D. and uh, but then, right after this perfected Pythagorean angle of 3, 5, and 7, which represents the way, the truth, and the life, there's another misshapen angle that represents, that lasts from 48 A.D. until about 75 A.D., which is Paul. And Paul comes along, who was Saul, and he creates a religion, and this is the big battle today, he creates, he creates a religion about Jesus rather than the religion of Jesus, Jesus. And so that diverts into the Queen's Chamber. So everybody that's here for material stuff that just wants, you know, nice cars and nice watches and, you know, and, and the house on the beach and whatever else, they get diverted into the Queen's Chamber where they just kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're just bedazzled by the illusion of material things. And then you have the rest of the path, which is everybody who, send, who, who ascends upwards, uh, eventually winding up in the King's Chamber uh, which represents the uh, represents the 30th century, and the the empty sarcophagus is a representative that you you will be able to maintain your consciousness. And we do in Nepal, amongst the Tibetan or Nepalese monks, we did exercises about this, where you would actually focus your consciousness into a a, a sphere, and um, so that when you leave your body. You're not fragmented. You you know you don't forget everything, so that you're not constantly on the wheel of samsara, which it means each time you incarnate, you're just going round and round and round and round and round in the same circle. So instead, it becomes like a stairway to heaven, where you have your past life experiences, you bring them forward with you, and half the stuff we did in the monastery was about accessing past lives, and uh, you know not to be egotistical about it. It's just that you access them so that you could bring that energy and information forward uh every past life i was trying to help people and i'd get killed every single past life and so they said are you done with this hero complex thing already because i, I was living through what you would recognize as fairly famous past lives but was then murdered uh martyred if you will for uh, for trying to help people and it's already happened in this life so um so there you go i don't know if that answers your question or not yeah, I don't know if we have time. I, I, I mean, I only usually go about an hour, but I had to ask you about time travel because I know time travel is, is 
heavily in the Sands of Time book as well. And I was going to say, like, how does that tie in with everything that's going on? Like, before we got on the show, you mentioned about um, Fred Bell, who uh, that's a, another Art Bell legend. You said he was your uncle. Like, I'd love to hear a little bit about that, how that ties into everything. So maybe, like, you know, time travel, Sands of Time, Fred Bell, how that all kind of intertwines and stuff. If you don't mind, if that's too much, sorry. No, um Uncle Fred, you know, I, 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 he's not my biological uncle. I, I, you know, I knew him since I was five years old, and he was, and so you just called him Uncle Fred, and uh, he was one of the founders of the National Health Federation with my mom, and when I was in, in college, and came down from uh, Atherton up in Northern California, uh, and came down to SoCal to go to USC. I've been going to Stanford. I didn't like Stanford. I thought people at Stanford were creepy and stupid, and the girls are really ugly. And uh, so we came down to USC, and uh, Fred lived in Laguna Beach on top of a dormant volcano that he claimed uh, in a house that were an area that used to belong to George Adamski. And he was doing lasers for the Moody Blues, and he had uh, uh, a complete sound stage and sound studio in his house. And we started building a time machine in his yard, and uh, based on information he claims he got from Simiaze from the Pleiades. And another contact he had with the Andromedans, of which this medallion uh, came from the uh, came from his contact with the with the Andromedans. From uh, again, I think these were from the actual galaxy of Andromeda. Um, we built a time machine in his backyard. I think it was four stories high. It was a dodecahedron. It had like a pyramid at the top and a pyramid at the bottom. And um, didn't operate the thing. I mean, this is a big. This is a kind of a long explanation here, which. Uh, I didn't realize we had a big limit on time. But uh, uh, the way it worked was that I connected this thing into the into the you know the electrical pole of the city, and we used it twice. And it blacked out the city. It blacked out the entire city of Laguna Beach and parts of Newport each time we turned this thing on. And Fred was messed up. I mean, he, he had blood coming out of his eyes, his ears, his nose. Uh, I didn't take him to the hospital the first time. Second time I did. But... Um, how do I explain this? He moved, I mean, and, he, and the first time I dragged him onto his bed and, and underneath his pyramid, down his bed where Megan, by the way, was born under the pyramid with the, you know, on the bed. And he grabs me by the scruff of the neck, grabs me by the throat and says, Sean, the future, it's not there. It's not there. And this has to do with not just travel and time, but time has to do with vibration and frequency. So you have to imagine... Merrily, 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 floating down the stream. In order to get up the stream, you have to jump onto the shore, which is another dimension, run up the shore, and then jump back into the stream. But then you've got to float along with the stream. So you have to match the vibrational frequency of the river in order for you to travel down through that time. But you are vibrating at your frequency of now. So if you stop vibrating at the frequency of then, you just snap back to the place where you originally were. Now, it's also almost impossible to change events in time because time as we know it is a, is a construct of agreement. So you must imagine that you've got 8 billion people on the planet all holding hands, walking backwards, that are creating reality as we experience it. So the Buddhists say, or the Buddha said, that that an apple is not an apple until you experience to be an apple, which is true. So what Fred jumped into, vibrating at his frequency of now, jumping into then, 
but still vibrating in that frequency, what he saw was what he said looked like a gigantic holographic construct. Like when you have a video game that's kind of on the fritz and you can see through everything and you can see the blocks and the buildings and whatever else, but it's not there. It hasn't really been constructed yet because consciousness has not interacted with it. Now here's the other problem. <coughs> the past as we know it exists in space. Uh, light and sound exist infinitely and forever. If you and I were to, were to jump 10,000 years, light years away and had a telescope that looked back on Earth, we would see what Earth looked like 10,000 years ago because it takes that long for the light to get there. But as far as jumping back and interacting with it, if you're spending a day on the beach and you see a wave coming towards you and you run towards the wave and you toss yourself into the wave, you just create a small hole in the wave and the wave just fills itself up and, and hits the shore. The only way to create, an, create a way to keep that wave from hitting the shore is you have to create an equal and opposite wave of consciousness to be able to make that go. So, for example, you know, I can make a prediction that uh, on such and such a day something will happen, and it happens, and 10 people hear it. I make another prediction, 100 people hear it. I make another prediction, 1,000 people hear it. I make another prediction, 27 million people hear it on, hear it on Coast to Coast. Let's say people don't want to see that prediction come true. They create that equal and opposite wave to then stop that prediction. So it's why you, you might be right nine times. And the 10th big one, you'll be wrong because consciousness has caught on to the point where people are actually creating the anti-consciousness, if you will, the, the, uh, the antithesis of what it is you're predicting or what it is you're trying to predict. Now, um, that being said, the timeline on Earth has been shifted a number of times. For example, uh, the green ore, the, 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 the green gourds that I was telling you about, that was a direct timeline shift. Gordon Michael Scallion at the time was the Mac Daddy of earthquake predictors. And during the Landers quake, the Landers quake could have, could have been the trigger for California to fall into the ocean and was the trigger for the Edgar Casey prophecies, which no longer function, the Nostradamus prophecies, which no longer function. Uh, poor Gordon Scallion, was so tied into the cement of his own predictions and timelines that I think he just eventually went insane because you don't hear from him, you don't hear about him anymore. Uh, I know, he just kind of disappeared off the map, right? Because he was wrong all the time. And, and that's why I started my newsletter in 93, my Delphi Associates newsletter, because I kept saying, look, Gordon's wrong. Uh, Dolores Cannon, who was a total bitch, she's wrong. Uh, and I'm the only one that's been right because I'm riding that, that surf, that time stream. And that's when I predicted the Northridge quake. And, uh, and I predicted the exact location of it and how it was going to happen because I knew the Northridge quake was going to be artificial. Northridge quake was actually triggered by the military to stop bigger quakes from happening in Southern California. And they used, they used uh, extra low frequency waves and sonics and all kinds of stuff to trigger that quake. And, um, and it's because myself and my earthquake sensitive group kept hearing this, this horrible sound every time we tuned into it that made us understand that the, uh, uh, the Northridge quake was going to be artificial. Now, it's interesting because I'm in Japan, and I'm teaching remote viewing in Japan, and I'm trying to tell people to get the hell out of Kobe, Japan, and Osaka. And uh, because another earthquake happened there, uh, which is linked spiritually and psychically, uh, because Los Angeles is the throat chakra of the world, so we're the voice. So it's interesting that where the, throat where the actual pinpoint of the throat chakra is, is uh, it's at the gazebo on Alvera Street, 
uh, in downtown Los Angeles off 6th. And uh, people also don't know that there is a gigantic city uh, that I've been down to uh, on 6th and Grand that you, that you used to be able to access. They covered it all up. They, they cemented all the stuff in. But there's a huge city underneath Los Angeles, and uh, which is all kinds of weird. But um, uh, but it's there. And uh, uh, but that's the gazebo. So that's so we're the throat chakra and Osaka, Japan or Kobe, which is a suburb of Osaka, uh, is the third eye of the earth. And so it's it's interesting that the that the Northridge quake happens. And exactly one year later, almost to the second was the Osaka or Kobe quake that that occurred because those those chakras are linked. And by the way, there's a ginormous uh, fiber optic cable that actually connects Hermosa Beach and uh, Southern California and the Valley of Death and the military industrial complex, which is, you know, Northrop Grumman used to be TRW, uh, Hughes, Raytheon, all this other stuff, which connects it directly to uh, uh, Kobe and Osaka, Japan. So there's a, there's a direct link there by fiber optic cable. So as far as time travel goes, yeah, you can do it. But if you shot Hitler, as an example, you, you can't take away the capstone of a pyramid and expect the pyramid to disappear. It has to be, if I took a million people back into the past and those million people uh, knew what Hitler was going to be, then, yeah, you could, you could change the past. Now, the Vrildaman diaries are so revolutionary. I mean, I mean, what's not to love? You've got beautiful women with hair down to their ankles channeling uh, ETs naked. Uh, you've got Hitler going crazy. You've got inside the Third Reich. You've got flying saucers. Uh, you've got, uh, I mean, what's not to love? The Vrildaman books are fantastic. And uh, uh, the Vrildaman diaries, I think, are really, will really affect people. And they really tell things from the inside from more of a feminine point of view. Uh, from uh, the true diary of Baron Wilhelm uh, von Ritter Spottenheim, who just wanted people to call him Baron Fritz at the time. But he was uh, madly in love with Sigrunt, who was one of the Vildaman girls, was, was sexually involved with her, and uh, was financing and helping build uh, the ships that eventually allowed the Vildaman women and their support staff to, uh, they left a telegram that said, none of us st are staying here, we're all going home. And on March 11th of 1945, they disappear completely from history, but leave behind uh, super technology that was being developed by BMW Messerschmitt at that time, uh, and saucer tech that's kind of spread out through the world after that. I got a question. What, where was this? Uh, the last question I have for you is where was this channeled info from? Was it uh, reptilian or were, were they channeling someone from Aldebaran? I got, thought it was or from what I've heard through UFO war. I thought it was Aldebaran, but I'm not sure. It's Aldebaran. The Orstic, the, the, the Vrildaman dame. The Vrildaman women uh, were originally channeling Dietrich Eckert. And Dietrich Eckert was the spiritual, philosophical mentor of Adolf Hitler and Rudolf Hess. As a matter of fact, it's the philosophy of Eckert with the smoky gods and the giants in the, in the middle of the earth and the master race and you know, all that you know, Nazi mythological hoobajou, uh, which is you know, in the books. Uh, they're getting it from Dietrich Eckert. So Eckert dies. And... Uh, Hitler, who was like a psychic core, I mean, he just he, he wanted psychic readings all the time. And so his main squeeze was this beautiful uh, woman from Zagreb, Maria Orsic. And she was with Hitler all the time and was in all the tabloids, if you will. And uh, so Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany in uh, 1932, uh, three weeks before FDR becomes President of the United States. Uh, 
and uh, they were channeling Dietrich Eckert. And then Eckert moves aside and says, uh, there is another force that must speak to you. And then the Vrildomen are taken over by these Sumerians, who basically say, look, we've been here for 500 million years. We founded Babylon. We founded Rome. Uh, we're now here to help you. And they start giving Sigrun, the main girl in the book, uh, uh, scientific... Uh, she starts writing in Sumerian cuneiform. And, uh, I mean, page after page after page of this cuneiform. So Hitler gets in these scholars to say, yeah, this is really cuneiform. She, how she learned this, this ancient Sumerian language is beyond us. And then one of the guys that was in one of the channeling groups uh, was Baron, uh, uh, Baron von Zibotendorf. And Zibotendorf was the, the leader of the Thule Society. And the Thule Society believed that there were entrances into inner earth uh, both in the Arctic and the Antarctic, which is why the, the Germans were so fascinated by discovering the Antarctic, because they thought that they would find the, uh, the entrance to, a, to an inner Earth and get contact with the smoky giants. And, uh, and so the Sumerians came in, and they started giving Sigrid technical plans of how to, how to build the Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3, uh, Hanabu, and uh, the... Um, uh, yeah, the Hanabu. Well, there were there were two different uh, two different classes of them, but uh, um, yeah, the, and and also talking about the Vril Force, that the Vril Force was very much the force of gravity. That it's very much like George Lucas's uh, uh, Star Wars, and so they started building these things, not realizing that the Vril women were kind of tricking the Nazis into giving them the money to build their ships that would work. That would allow them to almost instantaneously teleport to Aldebaran, uh, but giving them junk uh, that would fly for a while and then just kind of fall apart. Uh, the main key guy on this was uh, also Übergrubenführer Hans Kammler, and Kammler rose up in the Nazi ranks because in 1937 they had their version of the uh, uh, of the of the Roswell crash, and uh, he found a, a crashed spaceship in the Black Forest. And he managed to pull the, uh, the the star drive out of that spaceship, which became known as the Nazi Bell. And I mean, I could send you a video of the Bell. The Bell, uh, they would chain it up in the middle of a circular concrete ring or hedge, and then turn this thing on. And there were these purple uh, whips of energy, uh, which are called solitons, by the way. This is time energy, and it would come off of this thing, and they would take one of their uh, uh, Hanabu ships and fly it over or park it on, the, uh, on these, these hinges. And then when they kicked the star drive on, it would create this vortex that would, boom, take the ship, and it would go to Aldebaran. And they only managed to do it four times, and the fourth time they came back, uh, it, was a, it was a flying Dutchman. Everybody had aged like 100 years, and the whole ship was falling apart, and it was all a bunch of skeletons. And uh, they realized that the technology they had, that they'd kind of been tricked. And, uh, I got a question. Yeah. Do, do you think that that, uh, that that Nazi bell is what landed in Kettsburg? I, by the way, I live near Kettsburg. I'm, I'm from yes. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So that incident is like really big news here for like, there's like local ufology guys who went and investigated it. I mean, I've interviewed a guy, his name's um, Stan Gordon. He's legendary for like UFOs and cryptids here in Pennsylvania. And he was uh, on the scene back in the 60s or 
yeah, back in the 60s when I think he was nine years old when the Kecksburg thing happened, whatever that incident was. I don't know if you're from, I'm guessing you have to be familiar with it. But like, and, only, and, and, uh, with it. There's a whole chapter in the book that explains it. And again, they were using the bell to try to get the power to win the war. And this was 1945. And uh, what happened was it, it destroyed an entire underground facility, ripped open the top of a mountain, tore open a huge uh, gap in time space, and uh, crash landed uh, in, uh, I think it was December 12th or something of, of uh, 1964 in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. And it was actually then retrieved by, uh, by a Project Pounce team, uh, which was gathering up you know, uh, German technology after the war in a, in a big uh, uh, competition with the Russians. But there's a whole chapter in the book. Matter of fact, we, uh, with the TV series, uh, I think we opened one of the one of the versions of, of the TV series, the pilot that we were trying to get on TV. Uh, uh, it opens with that particular scene with Hans Kammler and and Ann Corbett and Dr. Simon Ratterman, who had defected from the Americans and and uh, all that. But uh, yeah, Kecksburg, the uh, the the bell plays a a, a big role. Uh, actually in the Draco War as well. So you'll see how we use it to kind of fight off the Draco. But yes, it's the same object. That's awesome. So my last question to, to, to sum all this up is like, what books should people get first? Like, I know you'll probably say Sand of the Time One, but like, it sounds like the real Dahlman mysteries are just as, 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 as insanely exciting. It sounds like the real, I mean, it sounds like they're, all your books are exciting, but like, if you had to say, like, go get this one right now, which one would you say? I mean, you probably won't. I'll just let you say that. Well, well, the whole adventure begins and is laid out in book one and then kind of concludes in book two. Uh, the Vril Dahman is a standalone book. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, I made it really big and thick. Let me see what I got here. Uh, huh. I'd ask my lovely wife to get me a copy of the book here. Honey, could you get me a Vril Dahman book, please? And uh, I printed it in, in such a way. It's really thick, so it looks like it's a lot, but I printed it with really big type uh, to make sure it's, there's, it's on the table there. Uh, really big type so that people can, uh, uh, you know, so it's really easy to read, even though it looks like a, like a big chunk and quite a bit. The mysterious hand that comes through. The, comes through there we go. There's the, there's the real diamond. Oh, see, that looks cool. It's a, it's a very big book, but the, the, the print is huge. I mean, it's like 12-point, double-spaced. And to give you an idea... Uh, that is Sigrund in the back with one of the flying saucers in the background. She looks exactly like Taylor Swift, which is weird because it makes me think. Yeah, those real girls were all really hot. They, I mean, they were all real hot. Taylor Swift is some kind of alien, and she's a, uh, you know, she's like David Bowie and the man who fell to Earth, uh, trying to gather enough money to build herself a spaceship so she could go home. Uh, let me see where it's. I've always thought Maria Orsich was like drop dead gorgeous. Like if you if you look if you I mean if you look up yeah that's her. That's Maria, and actually there's a better picture because that's a that's just a painting of her, but the better picture is of Sigrund who is the redhead, and this is an actual photo of her. And there's Sigrund with a, a German ship in the background. And uh, cool. she, was, she was the brains behind the whole operation, Sigrun was. And she was the one, Maria Orsic would come and say, oh, a Wolfie wants a psychic reading. Wolfie wants to know the future, which was their nickname for, you know, for Hitler. Because, you know, Nazis are so cute when they're little. And Sigrun would be the, ones, the one that would do the, uh, the readings and pass it on to Maria, uh, you know, to keep them funded and to keep, uh, to keep their whole program going. Here's all five of them, actually. This is a... 
good shot of all of all the uh, real diamond girls. And then Sigrun from the back, you can see how long her hair is, her big red hair that goes went all the way down to her, her knees. Who are the other ones that, uh, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I just got to ask you this. Who are the other ones that we might not know about that were definitely involved that don't get a lot of airtime? Well, you, you learn all about them if you if you can get the book. You've got, you know. You okay, that's there. fair. That is fair. That is yeah, fair. Got, that uh, makes that makes sense. Makes sense. You've got six. Got to save got something for the book. That is true. That is true. Yeah, you've got Gudrun. You've got Heike. You've got uh, uh, Maria. Um, yeah, Maria and Sigmund and Heike and you know the, the the five other girls who kind of they all disappeared. By the way, every single one of them just vanished after the war. So you know. That's insane. There are some women today. Uh, I've met a woman who claims she's like 150 years old and she doesn't look more than 35 who claims. Well, wait, they, I got a question. What do you, do you think the, uh, the significance is? I know that, um, someone said that, um, Billy Meyer, when he met Semyazi, that could have actually been Maria Yorsi. No, <laughs> I mean, he's never said that. <laughs> no, he's never said that. He, someone else said that someone came on my podcast and said, and made that allegation. Uh, okay, Samyazi doesn't look anything like her. Uh, Samyazi is, you know, kind of puggy looking, actually. She doesn't look anything like Maria. Um, Samyazi was 350 years old, I think, uh, at the time Billy met her. Uh, there's another woman that looks a little bit more like her, but, uh, again, Billy was in contact with two major races. Uh, one was the Pleiadians, and, uh, and that was Samyazi, and the other one was Azkit, and Azkit claimed to be from uh, from a, a, a planet called Timur or Timuria, uh, which was in another universe. That that our universe is a is a bifurcated universe. That it's it's almost like the yolk on an egg, where our universe, which is called the Dern universe, uh, shares energy or space with what's called the Dahl universe. And so Billy was in contact with his first contact was with Azkit, who was from this other universe. And he was in some kind of sexual relationship with her. And when he was traveling around India, uh, he's the only person that could ever get kicked out of India for being indigent, if you can imagine that. Because everywhere he went, there would be riots and people would follow him around because, you know, the, the saucers would follow Billy. And, uh, and then years later, uh, he, he came in contact with Samyaze and he introduced Samyaze to Azkit, so the Pleiadians, to the Tamirians, and it started his great journey where they actually took a Pleiadian mothership uh, and they jumped into this other universe where they had an exchange of, you know, knowledge and, and you know, with, it, with the beings in the other universe. So, yeah, there's a lot. And I wrote a movie about the Billy Meyer case and I've been to his farm and I'm good friends with his son. And when I work for Unsolved Mystery. So you, so you fully believe in the Meyer case, then it sounds like. You believe he's legit. Well, just for... You know, here's the problem. I keep telling you, the Palladians have lousy taste in people. So, again, <laughs> you know, if I'm a UFO contactee and they stop talking to me, I can't just go back and flip burgers at In-N-Out, can I? I mean, it's... it's no, it's kind it of ruins your life, life, right? So, when Semyaze left and she uh, fell down and split her skull open and had major brain damage of some kind... Uh, the contacts now were then taken over, I think, at first by Semyaze's brother, Quetzal. And then now he's in contact uh, with, uh, with Pata, who claims to be the father. Uh, 
and now his his latest thing is the Henek prophecies. But you know, it, it, it's like the old Chris Christopherson song. He's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction. So once Billy gets into telling you that he was really Enoch, he was really Ezekiel, he was really Muhammad, uh, and when he gets into telling you that he was really Jesus, uh, you know, it, it gets laid on a little thick. So um, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know his his wife. Poppy or Calliope, who's nuts, uh, she left him. And, uh, you know, poor Methuselah, his son, who like I said, I was good buddies with. But, you know, Meyer just constantly shoots himself in the foot, just trips on his own dick, as they say. He was, Mufon was ready to uh, have a whole big national tour with the Billy Meyer case. And he screwed over the Mufon guys at the last minute, backed out of his contract. So suddenly, weeks later, Billy became the biggest fake out there. Uh, I was working on Unsolved Mysteries, and we had a contract with him uh, to give him an hour of network time on a show that was right four in the ratings to have him back out on us and have my partner Bob Keviat swear he was going to get even, and he did an entire show called uh, UFOs, World's Greatest Hoaxes. And, you know, he turned loose the Billy Meyer critics to just savage the guy. So he's his own worst enemy. And... Uh, so you think he's a little bit of truth mixed with fiction? I think all human beings are, unfortunately. And again, when you're, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you have people hanging on your every word and are willing to do anything you say, uh, you know, you, you, can't, you can't tell me that you and I could stand up to a temptation like that and, you know, not uh, take a little bit of advantage of it. But uh, that, that makes the, sense. Well, I just have one more question. Because you're a UFO legend, so I have to ask you this. What are your thoughts on the whole Val Thor case? Like, do you think it was real? I mean, those pictures look like guys from the 50s that could have yeah. been just like really attractive. Looks like, looks like like the woman's from, really attractive. You know what I mean? The blonde that they say with uh, the Val Thor's, uh, I think they call her, uh, what do they call her? Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, Jill. They say her name was Jill. She's from another planet, but her name's Jill. How does this, I mean, like, I don't, I don't. Okay, so I was, I was good friends with Dr. Frank Stranges. And Frank, you know, wrote the book Stranger at the Pentagon. Uh, Frank died some time ago. And uh, right now, my other buddy, uh, Craig Campobasso. Uh, I like Craig. He has, he, yeah, he's a great guy. And he has the film rights to that. But, you know, he can't get it made. So, you know, I mean, I've got a stack of projects and scripts that I've written. And, you know, if there is one person that was willing to come forward and say, you know, look, here's some dough. Let's get this done. I mean, I've, I've won awards for directing and screenwriting and the whole thing. And it's what I've been doing since college. I mean, I sold my first script to Buck Rogers and, you know, I sold stuff to Gene Roddenberry and, you know, over and over and over again. And, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because, um, you get into a lot of stuff about George Adamski and, uh, Adamski, uh, wrote a book called Inside the Spaceships, Flying Saucers Are Real, claimed he visited Venus. And I can tell you that, that a lot of the stuff they're telling us, well, a lot, most of the stuff they're telling us about the moon is fake. Most of the stuff they're telling us about Venus is fake. Um, Adamski claimed to have met Venusians and Saturnians and you know, all kinds of people throughout the, throughout the uh, solar system. So, you know, who knows? And with Stranger at the Pentagon, you know, they claim Valiant Thor was from Venus. And now they're telling you that Venus is uninhabitable and it's a, it's a sulfur planet. And um, yeah. I'm not so sure that's true. 
Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating, Sean. I see some people in the chatter saying they're going to get your book. So I think you really knocked it out of the park. You really, and thank you for staying longer. Like I appreciate it. Like, and thank you for answering all my questions. Like it, it was really cool of you. Like I, I know I have a lot of questions, but I, I love ufology. I really do. Like I can sit and talk to you about doing a great thing. You're, you're linking everybody's soul and spirit together. The whole point of everything is there's like six chakras on the planet, but the seventh chakra is the internet the seventh chakra is the human mind the seventh chakra is all of us coming together where someday the you know the the the, the, the global anthem of earth uh will not be john lennon's imagine where nothing exists and everything's terrible uh but i think it's going to be the beatles you know all you need is love because that's that's it that's you know that song sums it all up and uh let me let me leave you with this one thought so Every great civilization has a motto, and for the uh, uh, for the uh, the Greek civilization, it was "Know thyself." For the Roman civilization, it was "Pax Romana" or "To thy own self be true." To the great American civilization, you know, once they put a, a gravestone on us, it'll probably read "More is better." And if we just had more of something, it'd be better. But the Maya are interesting because the motto for their entire civilization is "All is one." Life has purpose. God is love. That means every single one of us is interconnected together at the heart, that we're all one being, that, that the more you begin to realize that, I can't be mean or cruel to you without being mean or cruel to myself. And so we're getting a much more global perspective that, you know, we are very much all alike. Uh, if life has purpose, that that means that every day and you get out of bed, if you take a breath and you're still alive, then you're here. And take it from a guy that on January 5th of 2020, uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer and that I wouldn't live through Christmas and I managed to fight my way through and, you know, I'm, and I'm back. And, uh, you know, it was from all the healing and all the, all the well wishes from so many people and financial help from them that I'm even sitting here in front of you now. And the very last part of it is that God is love. And if God really is love, then that means the prima mobile, the very first thought that created the universe, was about love, just as all of us have been created by love. Somebody had to love somebody else in order for us to even be here. And people just need to remember that. And also, in all this extraterrestrial stuff, you've heard about abductions and you've heard about hybrids and you've heard about you know, breeding programs and whatever else. You know why they do that? They do that because you learn that the most powerful force in the universe is the human soul, and they want it. They want it because... We exist as independent universes ourselves, that we are the gods because we can generate, we can operate, we can destroy. That's what it stands for. Just like soul stands for survival of universal life. We are the, uh, uh, the diamond, the Vajra. Uh, the Dalai Lama has a chant, which is Omane Padneham. And that chant actually means I am the unbreakable, unkillable, multifaceted diamond at the center of the 10,000-petaled lotus. And it just means that that diamond keeps taking on facets and brilliance as we move from life to life into existence into, into existence. And the key to, let me just give you, I should write a whole book called The Christian Buddhist on this. The key to Christ was that with his crucifixion, he took on all the sins of mankind. And so he, he paid the bill for everybody. So it freed us. It broke the chains of karma because Buddhism was right up until, you know, 33 AD. And then those chains of karma have been broken to allow all of us to be free, all of us to evolve, and all of us, the highest good any of us can do is um, 
contribute to the enlightenment of all sentient beings, which is the vow that I took, which is the vow that the Dalai Lama takes, which is the vow that uh, many people take. So that's it. That's all there is to say. Thank you. That's well. Well, I don't want to forget this. Can you tell everybody where they can? What's the easiest way to get the books? Uh, if they want to donate to you, uh, or if they want to get a hold of you, all that stuff. Anything you want to promote? Um, all I can promote right now is the books. I, you know, I, have, I don't have a show. I used to have a show on Revolution Radio, but I, I couldn't do it because of the throat cancer. But uh, we have the books are fantastic, and you can get get books one through six. StrangeUniverseRadio.com, StrangeUniverseRadio.com, StrangeUniverseRadio. Uh, we should be coming back with StrangeUniverseTV.com and doing you know podcasts and, and various other things. And uh, you know, I mean, I went back to you know, I started the Sci-Fi Channel. I started UPN. Uh, I'm hoping that we can start a whole other network with uh, with this kind of stuff. But right now, all I have to offer is Sands Time One and Two. Sands Time Three is the Icemer Protocol. Sands Time Four is a Time Runner Act One. Uh, Act Two is the uh, is uh, Parabellum or Antebellum, uh, which is the beginning. And then uh, the next act is the Vril Domin Diaries, which is an interlude. And then Act Three of Sands of Time of the uh, of the Time Runner series is going to be the Sumerian War. And then the final wrap-up, which is scaring me to death, is going to be uh, uh, the Draco War, the Alphaconian War, which will possibly become book, book 8 and 9, but I'm just writing them now. Matter of fact, it was weird because when I lost my ability to speak, I mean, I had a tube in my throat from a, uh, um, a tracheotomy. If you ever had one of those, they suck. Uh, oh, my because, God. Because the, the, the tumors had ripped veins in my neck, and uh, I was gushing up blood. And so they had to slit my throat open to put a tube in my neck, and I, I couldn't talk. I couldn't speak at all. So the only way for me to channel my vow of, of, of helping people and enlightening people was just to write. So I've, so I've literally just this year, uh, you know, put out what two – I mean, I'm, uh, it'll end with me putting out something like four books because I just sit here and write all day. My wife goes to work. Uh, you know, she runs uh, the new SoFi Stadium. So in between going to the Chargers and the Rams and the Super Bowl and uh, all kinds of fun stuff there, uh, monster trucks and you know, wrestling, and uh, I just I write all day. I write and I write and I write and I write and I write. So I write the books, I edit the books, I do the artwork, I you know I put them together, and uh, so it's really a labor of love for me. And, it, and it's the best way for me uh, because this is the truth. This is real. This will be the true hidden history of mankind at some point when they expose the fact that all the secret technology exists. That they could, that they they're working behind the scenes so all of you can sleep at night, but at the same time to to make sure that our entire economy doesn't collapse uh, when they introduce you know what they introduce. So there we go. Thank you so much for wow. having me on your podcast. It's yeah, this was awesome, and uh, thank you everybody for tuning in tonight. If you guys want to donate to me, you can donate to my PayPal. Um, if you want to buy a shirt, I have shirts still, uh, small through XL. Um, I usually put all the links in the description. I didn't get a chance to do that yet. I also have affiliates. If you want to use one of my affiliates, that gets me a commission. I like the, the monatomic gold, honestly, and the Shiwa Jeep. That, that really helped me with energy. But um, I'm not going to try to push products on you. I'm not I'm not like that. If you want it, it's in the description. You can check so, it all out. So monatomic gold now? There's a place you can get that? <laughs> I have this stuff. I have this stuff. It's called Shiwa G. It's it's honestly really good for energy. I didn't think it would be that good. The company that sponsors it is Healthy Nutrition LLC, but it's an Ayurvedic medicine. Yeah, it's okay, a, it's a, and it's I've taken this stuff herb. before I go on runs, and it makes me run like 
honestly a lot longer than I would if I didn't take it. It's like a black tar. I'll show everybody. It's really, it's really strange. It's like a, um, it's a black tar inside, like, but it's an Ayurvedic medicine. Have you ever heard of it? Yes, I, it's. I, I keep telling you, it's it's a it's a Tibetan herb. I've I've been taking it for for forever. Oh wow! Well, if you guys want it, it's in the it's in the description of my videos. Like, it's not in this description, but it's um it's it's in every other video. It's healthy nutrition. Use the promo code Rob. You'll get a discount, and then you'll you'll also be helping out the channel. So there. But buy Sean's books first. I want you to support the guests first. Support the guests before me because I want the guests to come back on the show. And the way they come back on the show is by you supporting their work. So do that. And and that's the most thing. That's the biggest message I want to get across. So thank you, Sean. Wait, here. I, I just do a... Everybody look right here. This is the greatest podcast ever that you've seen in your life. And you will buy Sands of Time, the greatest books ever made. And... Uh, and Damn, get a better t That is weird, but that did something to my brain. What is that? <laughs> it's, a, it's a uh it's a neuralizer. You've never seen these? No. For men in black? The neuralizer for men in black? Really? Oh, that's so cool. The di di you know, the dials so you can forget this much, that much, you know, whatever. And uh you can buy them for twenty bucks up at Universal Studios. But Sans oh, Time, wow. greatest books you will ever read, you will buy them and buy all of Typical skeptic podcast products. You will obey. <laughs> All right. Have a good night, guys. Oh, wait, uh, and uh, here, thank here, you, everyone. We've got these two. So if you ever.